Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 59 to the chief musician set to do not destroy a michtam of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me and behold, you therefore, O Lord God of, Is- of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. Selah. At evening they return, they growl like a dog and go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you, O you, his strength, for God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. And for the cursing and lying which they speak, consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be, and let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth, Selah. And at evening they return, they growl like a dog and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense. My God of mercy. Jonah 1, verses 4 through 6. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God. And they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. One thing that is universal in people is the reaction to total disaster. It doesn't matter how completely someone says they don't believe in God. It doesn't matter how rebellious someone is. And titles like atheists or agnostics mean nothing when disaster hits. The first thing that people do when they face true calamity is cry out, Oh God! God." (laughs) The hardened sailors of Jonah's ship were no different. As soon as the real trouble started, they immediately called out to their gods, implying that they accept the premise of a higher power, whether they have the concept of him right or not. And from the words spoken to Jonah by the captain of this voyage in today's verses, we know that he knows there is one God above all gods, and so does everyone else. However, being people, as we are, we usually don't give God the time of day unless we need something from him. And the greater the need, the more accurately and precisely we tend to call on him. David had a time in his life when he was in great distress. Well, actually, he had lots of such times. In those moments, he knew exactly where to turn for relief. That's our text verse for today from 2 Samuel 22. It's verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. Being merciful and gracious, he responded to David every time he called. But how much more pleased do you think the Lord was when David would come to him without needing a thing? He did this also, and surely the Lord found great pleasure in it, so much so that David was known as a man after God's own heart. We too tend to call on the Lord in times of distress, and he is there to respond. But we too should be willing to reach out to him even when there is no distress. And further, 
We should be willing to be obedient to him from the start and avoid the times of distress which will inevitably result from failing to do so. Jonah is a great example for us to learn this. He didn't obey, and the times of distress came heavily upon him and those that he was with. They had no light of God, and they had no ability to call on him as he expects. It was up to Jonah alone to make things right. They seemed to figure this out quickly, and they went below the deck of the ship to get things corrected. This is what is seen in today's verses. It is what we will take a peek at now. The Lord has given us where to go to find these things out. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three individual thoughts for you today. The first is a mighty tempest on the sea. It's verse four. Verse four says, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. And as I said last week, before I get started, for the people that were not here and don't know this, I'm going to be reading the whole book of Jonah in Hebrew. Okay, my Hebrew is terrible. I'm self-taught, but I'm doing this for a reason which will become really evident in the last sermon. But I will give you my literal word-for-word translation as we go. Read that again. But verse four. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. Va hetil ruach gedola el hayam, and Jehovah hurled wind whopping into the sea. Verse three began with and arose Jonah. He had taken his action and he had done his part to escape his duties. This verse now begins with and Jehovah hurled. It is time for the Lord to accomplish His work and to deal with the matter accordingly. The word translated here as sent is tool. It means to cast or to throw as if one is hurling a spear. The word is used just 14 times in the Bible and four of them, more than any other book in the Bible, are found in this little book of Jonah. It will be used in the next verse when the sailors throw their cargo overboard. Such is the magnificence of this wind. It would have been cast upon the vessel suddenly and with great force. The 147th Psalm speaks of Jehovah's power over the elements in this manner. It says there, he causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. In order to understand what is going on, one must understand what the sea represents in the Bible. It is a place of chaos and confusion. On numerous times, it is equated to restless masses of people, people groups and societies. It is a place of lawlessness where people are without God and his order and his harmony. This is reflected, for example, in the book of Isaiah where it says this, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. In the work of the Lord, the people are brought out of this disorder and into harmony provided by him. Again to Isaiah. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. In Revelation, the great whore is said to sit on many waters, meaning the gathering of the waters into a sea. Therefore, the symbolism is explicitly explained in these words. Revelation 17, verse 5, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. It is because the sea represents such chaos of the people without God and without harmony that we read what it will be like when all things are restored. This is found in Revelation 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. The word for sea here in Jonah is yam. It is specifically speaking about the Mediterranean or the Great Sea. The word yam, though, is also used to indicate the direction west. This is seen, for example, in Genesis 13, verse 14, where it says this, And the Lord said to Avram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and yama, westward. There the word for westward is yama, and thus it is indicating towards the sea. And so we have a picture being developed. Man was cast out of Eden. The tabernacle points west. The most holy place where the Lord dwells is to the furthest west. And so the sea being westward and also representing nations without God shows man's futile attempts at false religion in returning to God. The great whore of Revelation sits upon this confusion and directs the masses according to his perverse agenda. 
It is into this sea that Jonah has gone in order to head away from the Lord. And so the Lord has hurled his wind upon the waters to redirect the situation. Every detail is being selected by the Lord to show us an ongoing picture of the redemption of man. Jonah has left the land of Israel, which is set apart by God. Instead of going to where he was supposed to go in order to bring restoration to those who are separate and apart from God, he heads west into the great sea. How can the people whom God is calling to repentance do so when Jonah has gone into the sea? Picturing the world, which is already in chaos, confusion, and rebellion against the Lord. And that now brings in another need for us to meet. We are to understand what the wind pictures in the Bible. The word is ruach, and it is the same word which is translated as spirit and breath. For example, in Genesis 1 verse 2, the word ruach is used when speaking of the spirit of God. It says there, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the ruach, the spirit of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. There was chaos and confusion and the spirit of God was there to bring it into order and harmony. Thus, the wind or spirit in the Bible symbolizes the presence and the power of God both positive and negative, in how it is directed and used. For example, the wind can be negative in causing scattering and destruction, and it can be also positive in the changes that it effects. As the wind blows from an unseen source, in it there is a symbolic type of relationship between the divine and the created. Jesus speaks of exactly this in John chapter 3. As you listen, remember that to the Hebrew mind, the word wind and spirit were the same. And so they would carry a dual meaning to the ears of Nicodemus. Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So everyone who is born of the Spirit the different directions from which winds come can add to the meaning of the wind itself. Together, they will combine to form a picture of what God is doing. This is seen, for example, in the east wind. It is a wind of destruction and calamity. The east wind is what blighted the crops in Pharaoh's dreams back in the book of Genesis. It is also what brought the plague of locusts upon the land of Egypt and the wind which in Exodus divided the waters of the Red Sea. In Jeremiah and in many other places, the east wind is one of power and destruction. Here's what it says in Jeremiah 18. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. In fact, the east wind itself will be used in this way in chapter 4 of Jonah. Wind also symbolizes doctrine, both correct and false doctrine. The Spirit of God directs proper doctrine, but man directs false doctrine. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 4, verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. In addition to this, wind symbolizes that which is temporary and vain. In the 78th Psalm, it is used to show that which is temporary. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. Isaiah shows that the wind symbolizes that which is vain. Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. It's all the same word that I'm reading. It just translated as wind, breath, or spirit. The Lord is now sending his wind upon the sea of chaos in order to cause confusion, which is then intended to restore order. It is a marvelous picture of which is being developed for us to pay heed to and to understand. Verse 4 continues, And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, and there was a tempest whopping on the sea. The word mighty here is the same as that of the previous clause where the wind was described. Gadol, meaning great or mighty. I translate it as whopping. The mighty wind was the source of the mighty tempest. The word tempest is sa'ar. It is a tempest even like a hurricane. It is the same type of storm that Paul was caught in towards the end of the book of Acts. 
In Acts 27, this is recorded. When the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. The Lord caused both of these men to endure such a great storm in order to effect his purposes. In the case of the wind, it is from the Lord. But in the case of the tempest, it indicates the presence of the Lord for good or for ill. The whirlwind which took Elijah to heaven was described by this same word. He was there, safe and secure in the presence of the Lord as he was raptured to heaven. The whirlwind from which the Lord spoke to Job is also this same word. The Lord was there in the whirlwind, speaking to Job about the glory that he alone possesses. In Jeremiah, the same word is used several times to indicate the terrifying presence of the destructive power of the Lord. Here's what it says in Jeremiah 23. Behold, a whirlwind, that word of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. The same word again. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. In the theophany of the Lord to Ezekiel, he is within the great tempest itself once again. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind, same word, was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and their soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of the man were under their wings on four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. Citing these many references is not a superfluous thing to do. Rather, by understanding a broader picture of such a tempest, we can grasp what is being relayed to us in the book of Jonah. The wind of the Lord had been directed towards Jonah. From it has come the tempest of the Lord. Jonah could not flee from him at all, but instead he was caught up in his awesome presence. He was doggedly pursued and then surrounded by the presence of the Lord in order to bring harmony and order out of chaos and confusion. In the pages of this book, we are given front row seats into the very heart of God's redemptive plans for man. Each aspect of this story is passing before our eyes to show us what God is up to and how it points to the greater work of Christ on behalf of the people of the world. The wind which has come is powerful and it has purpose. In the Psalms, there is a beautiful parallel to what will next be mentioned in our ongoing narrative. It says, fear took hold of them there and pain as of a woman in birth pangs. And when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind... Verse 4 continues, so that the ship was about to be broken up. And the ship thought it should be broken. The language here is vivid. It is as if the ship senses its own danger as it rose and fell among the great waves, and as it was blown and scattered by the terrifying winds. This is so much so that it thought it was breaking apart. The ship considers itself, and then it considers the power of God's tempest and it sees in itself nothing but weakness in the comparison. The margin notes of the Hebrew text indicates that the term broken up here is also used in a graphic personification of the ship. It is as if the ship itself was a living thing which surrounded and protected the sailors. It has feelings, it has hopes, and it has fears, but these were all to end with its destruction. The same word is used of the people of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 14. Therefore you shall say this to them, Let my eyes flow with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people has been broken, that word, with a mighty stroke, with a very severe blow. The place of security within the sea of chaos was itself to be overwhelmed by the chaos which surrounded it. The sailors were certain to look beyond themselves for relief, or they were to look to their fate in resignation but they could not look to their own efforts to save them. This is what happened to Paul in Acts chapter 27. 
The tempest was so powerful that they had to undergird the ship with cables so that it wouldn't break at the seams. Eventually, the ship was grounded on a shoal and broken to pieces. But all the people on the ship survived. Jonah is on a ship of Tarshish, and the wind has come against it, just as the winds described by the psalmist that I quoted a moment ago noted that the winds came against the ships of Tarshish. The Bible is asking us to make these connections so that we can then understand the greater picture of what is occurring. That psalm is specifically one which speaks of the glory of God in Zion. In the psalm, it says that according to God's name, so is his praise even to the ends of the earth. How can God's name be praised unto the ends of the earth unless it is proclaimed by his people? This is what Jonah has been asked to do, and this is what he has fled from. His actions have caused the wind and the tempest, and those things have brought the ship of Tarshish to the very edge of destruction. The souls of the men must have been terrified of the works of the Lord, though they didn't yet know him. It is, again, reflective of the words of the psalmist. From Psalm 107, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. As we consider Jonah's situation, we cannot overlook that in Matthew chapter 8, something similar occurs. We are being shown in Jonah a taste of the greater ministry of the Lord. The account details what happened to the disciples as they accompanied Jesus. Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? In the case of Jonah, the Lord was directing his movements back to where they should be. In the case of the disciples, he was directing their eyes to understand the nature of the person who had accompanied them in their trip across the Sea of Galilee. We've all been directed by the elements at one time or another. When I lived in Japan, one summer I went swimming in the Mitake River. There's a river right outside of my house. There's a slow-moving pond towards the beginning of the river that's a well-known place for swimming. However, if you're not careful, you can get pulled into the faster-moving area and taken down through very, very steep rapids before you even realize it. This happened to me, and it was the closest I ever came to dying. It should have been a wake-up call to me, but it was another 10 years before I realized the gift that I had been given that day. Unfortunately, just a few weeks after my incident, another young person drowned. How the Lord works in our lives at times is rather mysterious. We need to be attentive to those things and to think on where the Lord is steering us. Will Jonah respond to the call? Will those with him respond? And when the Lord sends the wind and the whirlwind into your life, will you turn back from the wayward journey that you are on? A great wind upon the sea, stirring up chaos and uncertainty. This is how it appeared it would always be. Life seemed to be no more than absurdity. The ship of life tossed about no direction known. It appeared that all would be lost. We looked for help, but none to us was shown. What will it take? How high is the cost? When all seemed hopeless, help finally came. There upon the hill, a quieting of the sea. Upon the hill, a cross, and on it, one with no blame. The help has come. The waves are still. There is hope for you and me. Our second thought today is, but Jonah. It's verse 5. Verse 5, then the mariners were afraid. Vayireu ha-malachim. And were afraid the mariners. The term malachim or sailors is a plural noun which is the same as the noun melach or salt. In other words, they are the salts and thus mariners. We use the exact same terminology concerning our sailors today. The word is used just four times in the Bible, three times in the book of Ezekiel, and the final time right here. These men of the sea, experienced and knowledgeable concerning its power and its ways, understood that there was a dire situation that they were in. Their efforts to save the ship would be futile. The fear they felt is reflective of the fear of the mariners who had conducted Paul to Rome. We know this because Paul had to quell their fears with his words of encouragement. Here's what it says in Acts 27. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men! 
You should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Verse 5 continues, And every man cried out to his God, Vayizaku ish Elohav, and cried every man unto his God. The word za'ak, or cry, comes from a primitive root, which means to shriek, as if from anguish or danger. They perceived their danger, and so they shrieked out to their gods. In Shakespeare's The Tempest, when things got to this point, the play follows the same pattern as these men right now. All lost to prayers, to prayers, all lost, it says. The sailors were probably from various locations, and so each had his own god whom he worshipped. Each called on the god he believed in, hoping for relief from the plight. It was in a state of ignorance that they had received Jonah, who had offended the true God. It is in this same state of ignorance of the true God that they now call out for help, calling on whatever God they had come to know. As we will see, their gods were ineffectual. There's only one God who answers prayer, and he answers it according to his own wisdom and for his own purposes. In another exciting time in Israel's history, the people were confused about where prayers should be directed. Elijah came to remove their confusion. Here's what it says in 1 Kings chapter 18. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leapt about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances, until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. After their failure, Elijah came forward and had his sacrifice prepared. After dousing it in water three times, we read the outcome of his prayer. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, no, no jumping around, no cutting himself, nothing. He just said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Will these men of the sea come to the same realization that the wayward people of Israel did? Stay tuned for the exciting details as the book continues. Verse 5 going on. And threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. Vayitelu et hakelim asher el hayam lahakel me'alahem. And hurled the waves that in the ship into the sea to lighten of. Even after crying out to their gods, no one paid attention. The psalmist so long ago spoke about the nature of the true God in contrast to the gods of the nations. He is in control, but they have no power. Here's what it says in the 115th Psalm. But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. I used to have Buddhas all over my house. I had a store down the road. I imported stuff from Asia, and that's what I sold, Buddhas and all kinds of crazy stuff. And if I saw one I liked, I'd bring it home. Some people practice feng shui, hoping to get proper chi in their house. Other people look for enlightenment through yoga or transcendental meditation or some other crazy way. In the end, these things move us further from God. They don't bring us near to him. 
back on the ship because the sailors' prayers were ineffective, they next take action once again by hurling their wares into the sea. As I said, it's the same word that was used in verse 4 when the Lord hurled the great wind onto the sea. You can see the contrast. The Lord hurls a wind into the sea so that the ship is about to be broken up, and they hurl their precious cargo into that same sea in order to keep the ship from breaking up. There's a marvelous parallelism between the two. The Lord sends his hand in a wind of correction, while the men attempt to save themselves by the work of their own hands. Their gods had failed them, and so they believed that they must work their own way to salvation. The word kalal, which is translated as lighten, is found three times in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 10. The people of Israel had come to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and they had asked for relief from the heavy load that his father had imposed on them. He uses the same word in his answer. Here's what he says to him. Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you should speak to the people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter. That word there, to lighten the load, lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. The mariners are trying to lighten the load in order to ease the burden that they bear in order to be saved. But they do not yet know the Lord, who is the only one who can actually accomplish this. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see the contrast of what's going on here. The picture we are to see is that these men carry a burden they are not even aware of. Until they meet the Lord, the burden will remain and the whirlwind will continue to wreak its terrifying havoc upon them. And again, as has happened and as will continue to happen, parallels from this account in Jonah run deep in the New Testament. Just as they threw their cargo over to lighten the load on the ship, the mariners on the ship that Paul was on did the same thing when they were caught in the storm. Here's what it says. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed the next day, they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Later in the same account, they threw over the precious cargo of wheat, which they had kept on board in order to further lighten the ship. There was great loss, but it was in hopes of gaining life. However, their actions were of faith in the promises of God as relayed to them by Paul. The actions of the men here in Jonah so far in this account are that of works, not faith, in order to be saved. Verse 5 continues, But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, and Jonah was gone down into the recesses, the ship. The words show the complete contrast of Jonah to those working with all their might to save themselves. He knew that he couldn't save himself. He was out of favor with the Lord, and there was no reason to do anything but sleep. And so he went down into the recesses of the ship. It is the furthest place that he could go in order to hide from the anger of the Lord. And he simply and uncaringly fell asleep. Interestingly, the word sephinah, translated as ship here, is a different word than that which was mentioned above. It is found only this once in the entire Bible. It comes from the word safan, which means covered or paneled. That comes from a primitive root meaning to hide by covering, such as roofing a house. In essence, the words are relaying, but Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the covered vessel. He was hiding in the ship from the Lord, but the Lord had followed him. He felt he was safe and he reveled in uncaring self-security. He was living up to the dual meaning of his name. He was called to bring a message of repentance and thus hope for peace to one group of people. The meaning of the name Jonah is dove, but he also had so far only vexed those he was with. And that is the other meaning of his name, a vexer. So he's a dove and he's a vexer all at the same time. Verse 5 continues, had lain down and was fast asleep. Vayishkav ve'yeradam, and lay and was fast asleep. The Greek translation of the Old Testament says, and was asleep and snoring. The word in Hebrew is radam. It is a word used just seven times in the Bible, and it gives the idea of being in a dead sleep. It comes from a primitive root, which indicates to stun or to stupefy. It is what happened to Daniel when he had exceedingly fearful visions. In these words, then, is a contrast to the personified, awakened state of the ship in verse 4. 
The ship was animated to fear through the terrifying rush of the tempest coming upon it because of Jonah's flight, and at the same time, Jonah was fast asleep, even to a deadened state because of it. So you have a contrast being made here. When you're on a ship, the lowest parts of the ship are the best place to sleep because they don't bounce around as much. That and towards the back of the boat. This is where the captain normally sleeps, just as Jonah was fast asleep in the hold of the ship in the middle of the great storm. The words of Matthew tell us about Jesus during the storm on the Sea of Galilee. It says in Matthew 8, verse 24, And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves, but he was asleep. He was able to sleep because he knew who he was, what his role was, and that there was no need to fear. Today, when we get anxious about things, we tend to forget that he has it all under control. And instead, we toss and turn just like a ship on the ocean. But if we can really trust the Lord in his word, then the storms of life are nothing compared to the peace and the calm that he provides. They're his storms, and it's his peace. We simply need to choose which we're going to think on and which rest in. Here we are, sore afraid, as we cry out in our helpless state, praying that the tempestuous winds will be stayed, praying for a deliverance so great. The works of our hands cannot save us. Nothing we can do brings us to the place of safety. But upon the hill we see our Lord Jesus, as his body hangs lifeless there upon the tree. Shine your light on us, O God. Let the light of Christ illuminate our souls. Hear our praises as to you we applaud, and as the sound of heavenly music rolls. Praise be to you, O matchless King. Be honored, O Lord, as to you our voices sing. Our third thought today is arise. Call on your God. It's verse 6. Verse 6 begins with these words. So the captain came to him and said to him, Vayikrav elav rav hachovel vayomer lo. And came near unto great the pilot and said to him. The words translated as captain are rav hachovel or the great pilot. The hovel is only mentioned five times in the Bible, four in Ezekiel and the last one here. It is an active participle which comes from a root that gives the sense of handling ropes, and thus it is a sailor. With the adjective rav or great attached to it, the captain or chief pilot is indicated. He is the chief of those who work with the ropes. As the Hebrew society did not frequent the seas, their nautical terminology is rather obscure, but the intent can be drawn out. The malachim, or salts, mentioned earlier would be a general term for seafaring men. The word now used is more specifically used as defining a steersman or a top man. It is the chief of this class that comes down into the recesses of the ship and addresses Jonah. Verse 6 continues, What do you mean, sleeper? Malacha nirdam. What to, O sleeper? In his address to Jonah, his words use the same word for sleep as before. In other words, how can you be in such a dead sleep? It is as if he is utterly befuddled by the situation. And so even more, it is asking what kind of affliction Jonah suffers from. What is the matter with you that you're in such a dead sleep? There's terror on every side, and Jonah is down below sleeping like a baby. He seems to wonder if he has any conscience or any fear at all. Are you completely deadened to heaven's mercies? Thus the Hebrew prophet, who was sent to the greatest Gentile nation on earth in order to rebuke them of their sin, is in turn rebuked by a pagan shipmaster who has come to wake him up out of his spiritual lethargy, symbolized by his deep slumber in the flesh. The contrasts are astounding, and the picture in relation to Israel as a people is astonishing. And even more so, the picture of the dead church today is all the more relevant. Verse 6 continues, Arise, call on your God. Kumkera el Elohecha. Arise, call on your God. What seems to be implied here is that they knew there was something particular about Jonah. Verse 10 will say, For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. It doesn't say when he told them this, but it could be that it was before this time. They had been unsuccessful in crying out to their gods. They had been unsuccessful in their attempts to save themselves through the work of their hands. And now they were left with but one option. If this person was fleeing from his God, and if his God was so powerful that he could cause such a violent storm, then that God might still be near enough to save them from the storm and willing to do so as well. It is with this thought in mind that we come to the final words of our verses today. Verse 6 finishes with this. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. 
If so be, will shine the God to us that not do we perish. It is a clause rich in its words. First, the Hebrew does not simply say God, as is translated in the King James Version. They say, if so be that God will think upon us. Nor does it say your God, as is translated here by the New King James Version. Instead, it says the God. As with all people, there is a fundamental understanding that there is one supreme God. They have called on their lesser gods, and there's been no response. Jonah is now being asked to call on his God in hopes that the God will respond to his call. This is the intent of the captain, and it is clearly laid out by the term Ha Elohim, or the God. So if you don't have that in your Bible, which you don't, not one translation has it right in the word the. That article is there for a reason. It's a very rare thing in the Bible. Elohim is mentioned, what, 3,000 times? There might be 150 times where Ha Elohim is used, and it is always very important. It is an unmistakable point which is being conveyed in the specific wording of this passage. Next, the captain says the word ashat. It is a verb which means to shine. It is translated here as think. Other versions say notice us or pay attention to us or be concerned about us or maybe have compassion on us. This word ashat comes from a primitive root which means to be sleek and thus glossy and hence through the idea of polishing to shine. I asked Sergio about this word. He got out his Greek translation of the Old Testament after he analyzed the Hebrew, which we always talk about the Hebrew words because he knows Hebrew much better than I do. So he went to the Greek translation and they didn't even translate it. They just left it untranslated because they weren't sure of it. And it doesn't make any sense to say shine, but that's what the Bible is telling us. It's used only one other time in the Bible in Jeremiah 5 verse 28, where it is translated as either sleek or shine, depending on your translation. There is no reason to assume that it should be translated any differently here. In other words, the captain says, perhaps the God will shine on us. When God shines on someone, it means that he illuminates their thinking, shows them favor, and restores them to a propitious place of peace and harmony between himself and that person. By shining the light, everything is made manifest by the light. Despite being in a real storm in the sea of chaos, and despite being under physical harm, there is a spiritual connection that is being drawn out even by this pagan captain. There is disharmony between them and God which needs to be rectified. Though they don't know of the gospel, they do know there is a need for the gospel. The light of the gospel message is the only way to make things which are indecent appear as they really are. Once the truth of the gospel shines on the deeds of wickedness, they are exposed and can be compared to that which is right, holy, and proper. From that knowledge, they can then do what is needed with that light to come to a right relationship with God. Paul says exactly this to us in the book of Ephesians. It very well could be that he was pondering this verse from Jonah at some point and came to this conclusion. Now, in the book of Ephesians, which I'm going to read you this passage, not one scholar has made the connection back to the book of Jonah. They all say the same thing. We're not sure where Paul is citing this, but he's citing scripture. He says he is. And they all say, well, it could be a combination of this verse from Isaiah and this verse from Isaiah, or maybe this one over here. Not one of them has ever come to the conclusion because nobody translates this word properly. Perhaps the God will shine on us. Here's what Paul says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, quoting scripture, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead. That word radam, which means uh, sleep like death. Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. The captain says to the one who is sleeping, as if dead, arise from the dead, O sleeper. Perhaps the God will shine on us that we might not perish. It is the internal call of the lost human soul for the knowledge of God, which is found only in the face of Jesus Christ. Just as the cock's crow began the recovery of Peter from his spiritual slumber, the call of this pagan shipmaster to Jonah is the beginning of his own spiritual recovery. And once again, the symbolism from Jonah echoes through time and is found again in the voices of the apostles which cry out to Jesus. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. 
At this point, they didn't understand who Jesus was or the power that he held in his grasp, but they knew enough to see that they were incapable of handling the situation, just like those on Jonah's ship. In desperation, they called out to the last one who may be able to do something to keep them from drowning. This is exactly what happens again and again and again in our own lives. We wait until things are so completely botched up that there's simply nowhere else to turn. Whether in our own lives or whether in the state of the nations, think of the nations of the world, there is a time when it will be too late and the boards will rupture from the storms which press on every side. Let's hope that like the ancient mariners of Jonah's time and of the time when the apostles were in the boat with Jesus, that each individual and every nation will make the best of a bad situation before it is simply too late. If you're still in a spiritually deadened sleep where the light of Christ has not shone through to call you into his marvelous kingdom, I would hope that today would be the day that you get that fixed. All people instinctively know that there is a God one true God who is there above the storms of life. But we will go to the furthest recesses of the world to escape from him. Let us not be so hard-hearted that we would hide ourselves from him, but instead, awake you who sleep. Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. Call on him today and receive the radiance of God's love and forgiveness for you direct from the foot of the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ came to give his life in exchange for our wickedness and our sins, and that is the picture all the way through the Bible. There's not a page of this book, not a paragraph, not a sentence, and not a word that God has not orchestrated to weave together the most marvelous story that we could ever possibly imagine. I am going to enter the stream of humanity, and I'm going to undo what you have so horribly fouled up. I'm going to make all things right. And that is what God asks us to do, is to put our hope and our trust in what Jesus Christ has done, fully God, fully man. He can take care of it. Adam had sin in him. We've inherited that sin, and we are separated from God because of it. But Jesus Christ can be our new federal head by a simple proclamation. I believe. If you believe, you receive. It says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that the moment that you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, which is a deposit a guarantee of the sure things to come. You can never lose that. There's no such thing as losing your salvation, but you sure can lose your joy. So not only am I asking people to come to Jesus, but I'm asking you if you have never called on Jesus, or I'm sorry, if you have called on Jesus and you're not living for him right now, to turn your life back to him. Because I know there's not joy in your life if you're not living for him. I know it. You think there is. You might be having a good time with somebody else's wife, or you might be drinking your nights away in a bar. But there's no joy in that. You're doing that because there's something missing in you, and that something is Jesus Christ. Put him first and foremost in your life. My favorite verse in the Bible, half of you probably already know this, Hebrews 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Man, if we do that, everything else will just fade into obscurity. Bob was talking about corruption today at the beginning of this church service, and I thought, you know, everything about us is corrupt. If my finger gets cut off, tomorrow you go and you look at it, it's all bloated. It's corrupt. Every word that comes out of our mouth is tainted with something which is wicked. Then we have to actively try to not do that in order to be pleasing to God. Everything about us. You're talking about, are there going to be bathrooms in heaven? I can tell you, that's corrupt, man. That's everything that happens to this body is, we get old. I'm getting older and I got hair coming out of parts of my body I didn't have before. My breast stinks in different ways. All of these things are because we are corrupt. And it's funny, but it's true, isn't it? There's nothing that's decent about us and we long to have something different. And thank God that Bob brought that up today because we're going to have a body we cannot even imagine. But we have to suffer through what we're in here now. And that suffering is eased so greatly when we just keep our priorities on Jesus. Please do that. Be encouraged in Christ and put all of the troubles behind you and just fix your eyes on him. That's what I would ask you to do. But if you've never called on Jesus, do that first and then live for him. I got a closing verse for you today from Ephesians chapter 5. It's verses 8 through 10. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Wonderful. Next week is Jonah 
chapter 1, verses 7 through 12, my question is, what is Jonah nuts? He said it quite plainly. It's entitled, pick me up and throw me in the sea. That'll be our third Jonah sermon. And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean rages against you and is ready to swallow you up, he can send delivery to you in the most remarkable of ways. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Short poem. Once again, only three verses. It ain't going to be a long poem. And then we'll be done for the day. It's entitled Arise, Call on Your God. But the Lord sent out a wind on the great sea, and there was on the sea a tempest mighty, so that the ship was about to be broken up thoroughly. Such was the power of the wind from the Almighty. Then the mariners were afraid, even sorely, and every man cried out to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load, the precious cargo gathered from abroad. But Jonah had gone down without a peep into the lowest parts of the ship. He laid down and was fast asleep. He was enjoying a nap while on this trip. So the captain came to him and to him said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us as we sail ahead so that we may not perish on this ocean so broad. Lord, can we hide from your presence? Could we attempt to secret ourselves away from you? Instead, we should draw near and enjoy the pleasance. We know it is what you would have us to do. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to your call upon our lives and to never attempt to run from doing what is right. When your call comes, yes, the moment it arrives, may we be found to answer and be pleasing in your sight. Surely in this you will be happy with us as we follow obediently in the steps of our Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this marvelous story of Jonah. And yes, there are many, many details and they, they get almost overwhelming, but the details are necessary to understand the connections which you're making to Christ, to the people of Israel, and to the greater world at large. And as these chapters unfold, it's going to become more and more evident. What a great story you have given us to show us these things. And thank you. Thank you that you have, even despite Jonah's rebellion and even despite Israel's rebellion, you have been willing to call them back to yourself and to do what you're going to do in history, both for Jonah and for Israel. And thank you that you have called the Gentile peoples as well, that you have had mercy on us and you have brought us to the foot of the cross and covered us in his shed blood. Thank you for that, that we are the redeemed of the Lord because of what somebody else has done for us. You, oh God, thank you. Thank you for that. We love you, we cherish you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do it in the beautiful and exalted name of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What a marvelous story we've been given. What a marvelous story. I just, I'm so excited with these Jonah stories because they're just so relevant to our own lives and the ship and the waves and our running and God's calling. His hand being there with us, leading him back to himself. What a great God.